Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show. I'm Janice Lindstrom, the host for this show, and today is Friday, October 16th, 2015. I feel like it's been a little while since I've been on the show, so thanks for listening. And today we're doing Journal Club with Dr. Megan Masco. We're talking about the Journal of Music Therapy Summer Edition for 2015. It's Volume 52, Number 2. So let's jump in. Megan, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Janice. Should we start with the book review? Yeah. All right. Let's do that. So the the book is a new edited edition that's coming out from Dr. Barbara Wheeler. And I don't have the review actually right in front of me, and I told Janice that I wanted to start with the book review because I reviewed this book for a different journal, and I think it's a fantastic resource for music therapists. Um, So the the book is the Music Therapy Handbook. Handbook. Yeah. How cool. And by, it by, is a edited fan- by Barbara Wheeler. And it is a fantastic book. I would highly recommend that music therapists who are established, uh, interns, students, I this is the kind of book I think everybody should have on their bookshelf, partly because it is, it's just a great resource. It's full of fantastic information. The, the authors of the book chapters are all, recognize leaders in those particular areas of music therapy, whether it's research or trauma or specific methods and theories. Um, But it also is the kind of book where you could hand it to somebody who is not a music therapist. So I collaborate a lot with physicians, and it's the kind of book that I could take off my bookshelf and say, here, read this chapter, and it's written in such a way that somebody who is not a music therapist would not only be able to understand it, but would also come away with a much better understanding of music therapy. So I am a big fan of this book. I I am recommending it for my students. Yeah, I really do. I think it's great. Nikki Cohen of Texas Women's University reviewed the book for this journal, and she Mm -hmm. said that it would be a great textbook, especially if we move into a uh, master's level entry degree, and she thought that it was it was good for a higher level text that could be used for more than one course, and uh, good good for studying for the board certification exam. I was wondering which course, just assuming that we don't change what we're doing right now, do which course do you think it would work best in as a textbook? It. I actually think it depends. It depends on how your degree program is set up. So at the University uh-huh. of North Dakota, we offer Introduction to Music Therapy as what we call essential studies. It's a general education class. So it's required of music therapy and music education students, but really anybody on campus can take it. So we teach it so it's a little bit broader um, mm. in scope. But I think if you had like a primarily majors-only music therapy, Intro to Music Therapy, class you could definitely use this textbook i actually i think the first three chapters would be great for any kind of introduction to music therapy textbook i mean introduction to music therapy class and then there are other chapters that i think would fit in really well throughout you know the curriculum so um like we teach we teach a class that's on theories and methods in music therapy well i could certainly see the section that's on theories and methods, you know, being a text that we could use that as that textbook. Um, But there's also, because you're teaching psychology of music right now, 
And the mm-hmm. chapter by Connie Tomeno on music in the brain, I'm actually planning on using that in my psych and music class in the spring. I'm going to have students buy this book. Um, but her her introduction to music in the brain is just, it's concise, it's clear, it's understandable. Um, so, yeah, I think you actually could use it for multiple classes. Neat. Okay. So uh, which article do you want to go to next? Well, let's start with um, Dr. Delatoile's article, All right. which I believe is the first one in the journal. Um, it is. It's called is Self-Regulation a... and Infant-Directed Singing in Infants with Down Syndrome. Yeah, and I don't work a lot with kids who, um, I don't work a lot with infants, uh, but, you know, Dr. Delatoile is such a fantastic researcher, and I think her research is so interesting that I always enjoy reading something she wrote. She writes. Um, she, this was a study where they looked at um, how typically developing infants and infants with Down syndrome responded to infant-directed singing. And they used uh, infant gaze and affect as indicators of self-regulation. And I, I actually thought that even though I don't work with this population, I thought some of their results were really interesting. Um, and they're pri- they worked with three to nine month old infants, um, and they had moms who had all different kinds of you know ethnic backgrounds and um, who had different levels of education, which is good because a lot of times there's been a lot of research that indicates that socioeconomic status of the mother and the mother's education level has a lot to do with how infants develop. So it was nice to see a, an article. Mm-hmm you know, a study where they have this mix of backgrounds. Um, the thing that I thought was really interesting was it actually, I don't think was a result they thought they were going to find. And they, as as per usual, you know, anybody who's a mom, and I know you're a mom, um, <laughs> infant-directed singing, when, they're, when they were using infant-directed singing, they had more uh, gaze interaction with their children, with the infants. Um, but what was really interesting was for the kids who have Down syndrome, um, they talked about two different gaze types, and they had uh, sustained gaze, and they had intermittent gaze. And the the thing that was really interesting was that they differed, the two groups differed in terms of use of intermittent gaze. Which, hmm. until I read this article, I didn't actually, I wouldn't have even known what that was or why it was important. But they talk about how um, the kids with Down syndrome had fewer instances of this um, intermittent gaze. They had more, they had higher levels of sustained gaze. And but lower levels of this intermittent gaze, and then Dr. Delatoil talks about why that might be. And I hadn't ever thought about some of these things, but they talk. She talks about how, um, you know, infants will turn away if they feel like they're getting too much stimulation, or if they need to look at something else to get a different kind of stimulation. It's one of the ways that the brain learns how to regulate itself and regulate its sensory input. And for infants who have Down syndrome, that capacity might not be 
might, it might be impaired as compared to typically developing infants. And so they might not have the ability, that self-regulation ability to be able to look away if the sensory stimulation is getting too intense or to seek different kinds of sensory stimulation than the one that they're, with which they've been presented. So, I, you know, as per usual, we infant-directed singing increased sustained gaze, but um, it just goes to show that when we work with kids, even infants who are not typically developing, that we need to be really aware that we're not unintentionally overloading them with sensory stimulation because we can't right. assume that just because that they're maintaining eye contact with us that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Which, right. I, again, I think makes an excellent case for why it's so important for, you know, music therapists to be the ones who are delivering these services because, again, we're going to have this knowledge. We're going to know that we need to be watching for other indicators that maybe we're accidentally overstimulating these kids. Right. I was thinking the same thing. I like this article. Uh, from a clinical perspective, I thought it, it provided really good information about how to work with infants and uh, mm-hmm. educate parents. So even if you're not working with infants that have Down syndrome, this article just has really good information about the types of things to look for and how to educate the parents about it. Um, and yeah. I thought it would inform practice with these populations, with infants with Down syndrome and just infants in populations in general. I, I like the new – I feel like this is a, a Oxford publication – thing, but it was really clear and easy to read, and it seems really easy to replicate this study the way that it was written. Yes. And I love It's good her science. Explanations. It is good science. I loved her explanations of the neural processes that were in the literature review for typical development and for Down syndrome, because I found, you know, neural processes aren't necessarily something that's easy to understand, but I thought the way that she wrote made it easier to to comprehend, um, but I don't. I didn't feel like she explicitly defined infant-directed singing. So if you didn't know what that was, then it um, might be difficult to. I mean, you had you could uh, uh, deduce what that means based on the way it was written, but it wasn't explicitly defined. Yeah, and I think part of that is because you know, Dr. Shannon's been doing this research for a while, and you know, right. this is her wheelhouse, and so I. You know, you could go back and look at her other writings where she does very clearly define what infant-directed singing is. But, yeah, if this is the first right. time you've ever picked up a journal article by Dr. Delatoile, you might not necessarily know what it is. Right. And also, it seems like APA style that really likes acronyms. And so I find that confusing <laughs> when you have to give an acronym to everything and then go back and remember what the acronym stands for. <laughs> I know. We are a very acronym. Well, you know, I live in the world of cancer care and hospice and palliative care, and, oh, you want to talk about acronyms. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's the medical field that really likes the acronyms. I don't they know. They love oh. acronyms. <laughs> All right. So what's the next article that you'd like to go over today? So the next article is by Dr. Amy Clements-Cortez, and it is a Survey Study of Pre-Professionals Understanding of the Canadian Music Therapy Internship Experience. And I don't know that you found this necessarily very interesting, but I did because UND is situated, we're about um, 120 miles south of Winnipeg. So we actually have students who come down from Canada 
to study at UND, and some of them do their internships here in the United States. Some of them want to go back to Canada and do their internships because they have a slightly different um, accreditation process, but actually now their accreditation process is is, uh, very much in line with our process here in the United States, and they accept the board certification up there. So that was a very broad oversimplification of (laughs) the Canadian accreditation process. My apologies, Canadians. Um, but so this so this article actually was very meaningful for me because I do currently have some Canadian students who have talked about wanting to go back and do their internships in um, Canada. So this uh, this was a I believe it was a yep it was a survey of mm-hmm. pre professionals so pre professional music therapists um, who were asked questions about the um, what you know what the requirements are what is the Canadian music therapy experience like and there isn't a lot of research on this topic um, and I and I I wonder if that's because we have so many people who come to the U.S. and do their training I mean I just wonder hmm. if you know it's just because it's a smaller population but I don't know that I'm just oh, maybe. thinking out loud um so, and again, this study sort of mirrored in the background um, that Dr. Clement Cortez talks about mirrors some of the other research that you and I have talked about in recent journals about what are some of the limited abilities of pre-professionals, you know, musical skills, um, self ability to be self-reflective, that kind of stuff. And then she also talked about mm-hmm. personal and financial concerns, which I know is a huge issue for our pre-professional yes. students. So they specifically surveyed Canadian undergraduate music therapy students um, about what their perceptions were of their own skills and of their competence, how comfortable they felt with things, what their concerns and issues were, and what they felt like their challenges and anxieties were um, both before and after internship. And then um, she compared this this Canadian sample with other research on the topic of uh, of internships. Mm-hmm. So they were uh, these were people who were invited. Um, that believe they got the information from the Canadian Association of Music Therapy. Which, by the way, I love the Canadian Association for Mu- of Music Therapy. If you get the chance, you should go up to Canada. They do some fantastic continuing education um, programs. So we're lucky that we have the opportunity to work with them from time to time. Right, so they they're had, like next-door neighbors, the, right? They, they really, truly are. I only live an hour from the Canadian border. I joke with people oh, that wow. if it weren't for the border crossing, it would be easier for me to go grocery shopping in Canada than it actually is in the United States. <laughs> you, can't bring, bring back, you can't bring back produce, which stinks because oh. there's great produce in Canada. Hmm. Um, I live an hour away from another Texas Canada. city. <laughs> well, see, there you go. <laughs> Yes, I live an hour away from another country. <laughs> so they had they had the survey, and then they fall, and it was primarily um, Likert-type scale questions, you know, agree to strongly agree, strongly disagree. Um, and then there were also some interviews that happened. So um, essentially, and everything went through the University of Windsor Ethics Review Board. I love that that is now in every journal article in our music therapy mm-hmm. journals, is that, that ethical assurance 
So thank you, Oxford University Press and our editors. I know. Um, it's so great. I know. I really liked the I liked the um, literature review. So I was thinking that I this, search, this article may not be that great if you're a clinician and you're not supervising interns. However, if you are, or perhaps you're hiring new professionals maybe, um, some of this information might be useful. I, I liked the mm-hmm. literature review from the standpoint that it, it – um, compared it went through all of the or many of the other studies that talked about students and their training and their fears uh of inadequacy and all all of the themes that seemed consistent there were themes i remember went from when i was a student too oh yeah so and i have students have... now who i have students now who you know i say to them you know their junior year i'm like okay it's time to start thinking about internships go out you know start with your list of 20 and then we narrow it down to 10 and then we figure out what their top four are and we get that whole process rolling and it's amazing to me no matter how how positive of a practicum experience they've had or practica experiences they've had invariably Mm -hmm. they all sort of freak out you know they all sort of panic like wait what what i have to move on to the next level and I know that was it's, great because it's that a was rude awakening when you have to be an adult. <laughs> I know, and on page two twenty-five, it actually says, despite the training and practical experiences leading up to the internship, many students feel underprepared and harbor feelings of fear and anxiety towards starting their internship. And I think I might have mm-hmm. even like yelled out, "Preach it!" when I was reading that sentence because <laughs> I remember I feeling also, like that too. Yes, and I, I had and I had fabulous like... practicum experiences. <laughs> I also really like the recommendations for educators and supervisors. I felt that if I were going to be a clinician that had an internship, I would want to know some of these things. Um, And the part that I found interesting was the development of group counseling skills. That was one Mm -hmm. of her findings that that she felt there was a need area. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that, I think, and I, I think that's one of the most of the feedback from the students that I supervise in their practicum is that they they don't feel competent in the verbal counseling or the verbal part of therapy because we don't do counseling, yeah. especially in Texas, um, as music therapists without extra training. So, um, but I always encourage the students to bring it back to the music, and and then they'll always be. In, in a good place, but uh, uh, so that seems like a theme that we need to focus on in both countries, and then the development of workplace efficiency and interdisciplinary communication skills. Man, isn't that a heavy topic? Yeah. <laughs> Teaching efficiency strategies and planning, how to set up and tear down a session, how to plan multiple sessions, and organizational strategies. That just seems to be a real issue. Uh, I know it was for me when I was young, and somehow I figured it out and am still working on it. And there's a lot of blog posts about it, so it's a pretty big issue, I guess. Yeah, and there's, you know, and the financial concerns, and that, Mm -hmm. I know, that is a big issue for our students, especially with, you know, education debt being such a problem in this country. It is. And yet other professions... Other professions are set up similarly where they have unpaid internships, too. So it's hard to know how to balance that. 
Plus, we're asking yeah. oh, clinicians yeah. and to it is a donate their time act. to do this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have. Well, let's move um, on so we don't run it, out of time. Okay. Well, and I, I mean, in reading that, you can. I think as an educator, and mm-hmm. especially with my geographic location, I just found that article to be so incredibly helpful. Oops, and I just accidentally skipped ahead. There we go. See, I that's didn't think it was going to be that, that that's interesting, the bad but thing I found about it. To... <laughs> oh, yeah. I found uh, well, it to I read be it actually interesting like... to read. Yeah, I read it, and I was kind of like, oh, the Canadians. And then I read it, and I was like, oh, this is actually super helpful. So way to go, Dr. Amy Clemens process. So the next article that I have is Common Characteristics of Improvisational Approaches in Music Therapy for Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders Developing Treatment Guidelines. And boy, are there Mm -hmm. a lot of authors on this Mm -hmm. article. And I am not even going to attempt pronouncing everybody's name because I will butcher them and feel terrible about it. They were from Norway and Denmark and New York, Israel, Israel, Korea, and and Norway again. Yes. So fabulous international collaboration, um, and again something that, as we have more and more conversations about, and sort of seemingly endless conversations on the listserv about how do we talk about music therapy, how do we explain music therapy mm-hmm. to other people, how do we explain music therapy to ourselves, how do we, all of that. It was, um, it was nice to see this, and I know that this is the first in a series of articles that will be coming out from this international research group. So that's exciting. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to hear a little bit about it at Music Therapy Research 2025. It was uh, very exciting. Cool. Um, so they looked at, um, you know, how they looked at essentially just creating, a, formulating and revising treatment guidelines for improvisation, which is kind of an interesting concept, right? We think of improvisation as being that thing. It's very, you know, it it lives in the moment. It is in vivo music therapy. And and here we're talking about guidelines. And how do we understand those guidelines? Um, So they had, um, the, the background is, fascinating and I highly recommend for anybody that's interested in autism spectrum disorders and music therapy with autism spectrum disorders um, to read the review of literature because I thought it was very well done. It was very thorough, came from and and very helpful from a from a significant number of resources and other sources. So if you're a music therapy student and you need to write an article or an article review on autism spectrum disorders, or you have to write a review of literature, you should definitely check out this article and look at their bibliography. Um, But what they did was they looked at this team of researchers. um, Their whole purpose of this study was to look for common characteristics of improvisational approaches in music therapy when working with children with ASD based on targeted areas of development, and then they had some core guiding principles. And then this, I think, is very uh, was a, t- a tall order. If possible, describe an international consensus model in a way that balances sufficient standardization with flexibility to accommodate individual client needs in varying therapy contexts and settings. That is ambitious. 
and then mm-hmm. to create treatment guidelines based on those principles and evaluate their feasibility as a tool to assess um, adherence and competence in improvisational music therapy. And again, that's what this group, you know, longitudinally, that's what they're really working on is how can we evaluate and assess improvisational music therapy. And um, I'm very excited to see what else comes comes out of them, out of this group. So they had, um, they surveyed music therapists, and I like that they looked at a broad range of theoretical orientations. So they had uh, Nordoff Robbins music therapists, humanistic music therapists, people who can, people like me who consider themselves to be um, eclectic or, um, <clears throat> excuse me, integrated therapists, um, developmental psychodynamic backgrounds from ten different countries: so Australia, Brazil, Denmark, Germany, Israel, Italy, Norway, Korea, the UK, and the US, who employ improvisational techniques with. Uh, specifically children with ASD. That is that alone in and of itself is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they looked at what were some, gosh, they talked about these guiding principles, these proposed principles. And so they had four groups. They had things that are unique and essential to improvisational music therapy, things that are essential but not necessarily unique, things that are compatible and then uh, proscribed, uh, so things that are already that are predetermined. So they had focus groups in three countries, and that were led by the music therapy researchers. And then what they did was they went back and they looked at this initial survey that they'd created and revised it based on what had come up in these focus groups. And so they started to develop this tool to assess treatment fidelity. And again, they're looking, this is sort of the first step in their long-range research plan. Um, so when, when all is said and done and everything's been published, we'll sort of be able to watch their whole process unfold. So they looked underneath the things that are unique and essential principles for uh, improvisational music therapy. They had musical and emotional attunement. So how well does the therapist use his or her behavior to allow for moments of synchronization and attunement? And then they had um, scaffolding interaction musically and tapping into shared musical history. Those were the things that were considered to be unique and essential principles of um, improvisational music therapy. Then the essential principles are positive therapeutic relationships, secure environment, following the child's lead, having treatment goals, or does the therapist tailor his or her interventions to the child's developmental stages, and then enjoyment of the interaction. Excuse me. Um, So they had this initial version of the Fidelity tool, and then they kind of went back. They went through survey results, and then they got the feedback from the groups, and they wound up tweaking everything just a little bit. So they have some final treatment guidelines. And there's the figure that that they refer to as on page 271 in the journal. And so the things that are considered to be unique and essential to this approach are facilitate musical and emotional attunement, scaffold the flow of the interaction musically, and tap into shared history of musical interaction. And then this is something I think is 
really important and I'm so glad that they're looking at as we talk about, you know, music therapists don't own music. Mm-hmm. Um, they have some aspects of improvisational music therapy that are essential to the process but are not necessarily unique to music therapists. And that's build and maintain a positive therapeutic relationship, providing a secure environment, following the child's lead, setting treatment goals and evaluating progress. I was just talking about that with my students the other day and facilitating enjoyment. And then the things that are compatible with this approach were adjust setting according to children or families' needs, using clinical judgment, and accounting for practical possibilities. Um, so understanding that we don't live in a perfect world, um, so we have to be able to uh, account for those. So again, this article, it wasn't a research article in so much as it was an article about how are they development, developing these treatment guidelines that now they're going to be using in research um, on this topic of improvisational music therapy with children who have autism spectrum disorders. But I do think okay. that they, they have one part, the, the implication for practice. And I like the fact, I like that they say that um, you know, taking the time to think about what the purposes and the principles and the rationales are and the therapeutic attitudes and all of that, that's really important for music therapists. That's one of the things that sets us apart from the nice lady that comes into the nursing home or the elementary school just to play guitar. It's how we think. Mm-hmm. It's how we strategically think about what we're doing. So it'll be exciting to see what comes out of this group in the future. That is exciting, and I really appreciate you explaining it so well because I did not understand it as well as you did, it appears. Um, <laughs> I did find it interesting and came to some of some similar conclusions that you did, but not with the greatest, the, the amount of depth that you did. So I appreciate you going into that and explaining that um, strategy because I didn't quite understand that it was a – the difference between this article and a, a typical research article. So um, yeah, I will different. be looking forward to more uh, publications from, from this group to see what they come up with. So thank and you. the last article is the use of dialectical yes. behavior therapy in music therapy, a sequential explanatory study. So it's a mixed methods article from, um, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher Carolyn's name. Is it Schwalick? That sounds from good Appalachian to me. State University. And then Kathy McKinney. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think every, everybody in the music therapy field sort of knows who Kathy McKinney is. So she's just pretty much That's wonderful. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, she's lovely. Uh, yes. So they use a sequential explanatory mixed methods research design, which is it's a two phase. Uh, approach to doing to answering a research question to um, understand some more about DBT dialectical behavior therapy training, how music therapists use it, how they use it to inform music therapy, um, what are some of the music therapy experiences that are used to address you know DBT skills, and how does that really get implemented? So they actually the two researchers. Um, started out with a survey of board-certified music therapists. Um, and if you don't know anything about dialectical behavior therapy, and, you know, we don't have a lot of time, I, I do recommend that you would, that you read 
the, their review of literature because they do an excellent job of explaining what it is and how it fits in they, with music they therapy. They did, and I do not know anything about dialectical behavior therapy. I have seen it um, printed, uh, talked about a lot because uh, I follow, is it Deborah Spiegel that writes about yeah. it a lot? <laughs> yeah. She's so also I've, the only reason why I know what it is. Right. So yeah. um, everything I, I know did, about DBT, I learned from her. Right, and so I enjoyed this article because it explained it DBT a lot uh, better to me. And one, uh, what I found particularly useful was the the four modules in DBT are mindfulness, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. And they teach skills that are mm-hmm. meant to validate one's experiences. I also was not aware that this method was primarily designed to work with by uh, borderline personality disorder. But it also works with other people with different diagnoses. Yes, and if so, you've ever worked with clients who have borderline personality disorder, you know that it oh. is difficult, to say the least. Mm-hmm. That's I. I had my internship was part of my internship was with the Iowa Juvenile Home and State Training School for Girls, and we had a number of residents at the home who were adolescents with um, borderline personality disorder, and that was challenging. It was challenging work. It is challenging work. I have I have done some work with that population as well. Um, so that is what I most appreciated from this article. So please continue to share what you know about it. Well, they started with uh, surveying MTBC, the Board Certified Music Therapist, um, and to gather some information about their research questions. And then they, but they didn't have a very high return rate, which, again, not unusual for a music therapy survey study. Um, I think we're kind of surveyed out as a profession at the moment. We have been a little um, bit bombarded, and I, I delete those now. Oh, <laughs> I, you know, I and, look at unless them. Unless I see a name I, I recognize. Per- <laughs> I know. or And I have to say I have a real soft spot for the Ph.D. students because I've right. been there, done that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, if I specifically see that it's a Ph.D. student, I just I sort of understand their angst. So... <laughs> I'm more, if I know anything about the topic, I'm more inclined to participate just because I know how badly they want to graduate. Right, um, right. So, but man, they, it's rough. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, I had a, and I had great teachers, but it's still a really rough experience. Um, uh-huh. So they, they, had, they had the survey, and then because they had such a small sample, they knew that they really wanted, the two researchers knew they really wanted to learn some more in-depth information about this topic. So they actually sort of hunted down. <laughs> they had a set of criteria they mm-hmm. were, who they were going to interview. And there were really only two people who met their criteria, <laughs> which, again, in such a small profession, you know, is not surprising. Right. So they, and Deborah Spiegel was one of the people mm-hmm. that they interviewed, and the other one was uh, Gertraud Scheidt. Exciting that there's two, you know, two countries being right. involved here as well. So they, um, so I'm not sure if it was Dr. McKinney or um, our other, Ms. Schwally, Schwalik, gosh, I hope I meet you someday, Carolyn, and you tell me how to pronounce your name. Um, 
I have one of those first names that people constantly mispronounce when they see it if they've never heard it before, so I feel her pain. So then they had <laughs> they, uh, interviewed – it's Megan, but it's spelled funny. They, so then they <laughs> interviewed um, Deborah and Gertrude, and um, they had 21 questions that they asked. And some of it was demographic, and but a lot of it was about training and practice. You know, how did you mm-hmm. come to be interested in dialectical behavior therapy? How does it fit with music therapy? Um, and then what are your opinions and experiences? Um, which were very similar to some of the questions they had asked in the survey. But they were now, because they were interviewing people, they were going to be able to get some more in-depth information. Um, and so some of the things I thought about, I mean, that I learned from this, um, was they talked about, for me, it was what are the disadvantages of incorporating dialectical behavior therapy into music therapy? Because I could certainly see some of the advantages. Um, but mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about some of the disadvantages. And they, so the respondents talked about how it might be limiting because the concepts might be too abstract. So if you have somebody who isn't necessarily cognitively able to engage in that kind of abstract thinking that is required in dialectical behavior therapy, it might not be as beneficial for them. Um, sure. They might, yeah, and they might transfer negative associations between music and the dialectical behavior therapy. Um, music therapists might feel that this work is limited to certain settings and populations because, like you said, it was it's primarily used with borderline personality disorder. Um, so, you know, if we think that we might get in the habit of thinking that's the only place we could use it. Um, mm-hmm. The verbal nature can be limiting because it might be it might not be flexible enough. And then there's not a lot of evidence on training with dialectical behavior therapy and music therapy. And again, they had two people, only had two people who met their inclusion criteria for right. the for the interviews, if I read that correctly. So, you know, again, yeah, there's not a lot of evidence and these so if you don't if you only have two people and they aren't constantly engaging in research on what they're doing, then yeah, the da- the data set, the evidence base is pretty small. Yes, because it's hard um, to constantly do research when you're also trying to run your practice and actually see your clients. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. You'd have to have at least two or three extra days in the week for that to happen. Um, yeah, so get on but that, they have Deborah. Some really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. She already <laughs> runs the continuing education stuff. So. <laughs> we want you to do one more thing, Deborah. You're already a superwoman. Now we want you to overcome kryptonite. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, get right on that. I hope she's listening and laughing and knowing how much we appreciate her. Um, I would be honored if Deborah Spiegel listened to this show. (laughs) You know, I really would be, too. (laughs) You know what? And I'm so excited that conference is coming up because that's when I find out that people actually listen to us. I know. I'm honored when I hear that anybody listens to me talk on this show. So. I know. Me too. Me too. But they had some fantastic recommendations. They talked about recommended training. Um, and they gave some very specific experiences, you know, how you can, uh, instances of how you can incorporate music therapy and dialectical behavior therapy. They talked about how it's already being incorporated in the places where they work. Um, they talked a little bit 
they talked about how they use music therapy to address DBT skills, but that are but they're not necessarily DBT sessions. Um, and this is a good one. This was an interesting question: whether or not to use the label dialectic behavior therapy in mm-hmm. music therapy. I thought I was intrigued by that as well. Uh huh. Yeah. So, and they disagreed. The two interviewees disagreed because hmm. Deborah talked about how labeling it would might be really good, and then um, uh, Shite talked about how it might not be appropriate, or you know, it might not be important or appropriate for the client, and so we shouldn't necessarily use that kind of language. I always love it when people in research disagree because I think we learn so much when people disagree. Mm-hmm. We do especially in qualitative research. Um, so, yeah, I mean, essentially I think the take-home point is that as a profession, this is something that we really, this is an opportunity for us to learn. Um, and it was a very well-constructed study. You know, Dr. McKinney is a fantastic researcher. It was, she did an excellent job of constructing the study and implementing the study and using mixed methods. Because you know me, I do love a good mixed method study. Um, but, and, and I have to say that I actually used this study as an example in something I wrote about mixed methods, (laughs) about, about this particular kind of mixed methods research. So very well done. Um, and again, like you said, excellent explanation of what dialectical behavior therapy is and how it can potentially integrate with music therapy. It was such a good explanation of what it is that it my, it, it made me um, encouraged to seek out more education about it because I've been on Deborah's mailing list for a long time and I'm thinking, eh, why do I need to know about DBT? Um, and this article actually makes me want to find out more about it. So Well, and... You know, we were talking about how in that Canadian Association of Music Therapy, I mean, the Canadian study from Dr. Clement Cortez about how you know, mm-hmm. students want to know more about verbal counseling skills and yes. and more of the, you know, those kinds of clinical skills, the psychology clinical skills, you know, this might be a great way to learn about it. So, yes. I know I've been on Deborah's mailing too. list for a couple of years, too, and so I'm thinking maybe next year might be time to finally mm-hmm. take that DDT continuing ed class. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for talking with me and uh, carrying the conversation this this time, Megan. Uh, I learned a lot, as I always do, and I really appreciate oh, this conversation you. that we have. Journal Club is one of my it's favorites. Mine, too. You have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You do the same. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information or if you want to ask questions or tell us, hey, we listen, you can contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net. Have a wonderful – oh, next week I'll be back on Friday at uh, uh, 1 o'clock Central Time talking with Patrick Hearn and some other people about a very fascinating topic, which I don't actually know because I scheduled this show back in April for next week and uh but Patrick Kern always has good things to talk about and it's relevant to conference I believe because it's going to talk about some things that will come up at conference so 
have a wonderful week, and I will talk with you again next Friday.